Good morning, everybody. Here we are again, uh, scattered again, unable to meet again. And uh, it's been week after week. And uh, I am strangely becoming accustomed to speaking into a camera uh, and yet uh, longing for us to be back together again. Don't know when, pray it would be really soon. And uh, trust you're praying that it would be soon as well. Uh, meanwhile, here we are uh, doing our best to uh, sit or stand under God's word together. Uh, I don't know where you are on the floor, on a couch, uh, watching a television. And the goal is simply that we, as the scattered church, would uh, hear God's word read and think particularly about how we can be applying God's word to these particular challenging circumstances. And so that's what I've been striving to lead us in for uh, a number of weeks. Uh, I wanna remind you that every Monday, some questions related to this message uh, are emailed to you. And some of them are, are really designed for you to lead uh, even younger kids in thinking about uh, the message of today. Uh, it is not the same as a hearing God's word in a sermon on a Sunday morning. It's not intended to be the same, but it's always good to study God's word and to do it the best that we possibly can. And so here we are ready to do that even today. I must have been a sophomore or a junior in college when I walked around campus as the mascot, the uh, Oregon duck, my club, borrowed the costume for the day. And my job was, as you can imagine, to waddle around campus encouraging school spirit. And I have to admit that I kind of enjoyed the anonymity of it all, uh, hopping and skipping uh, along the school's main street. And everything was really going spectacularly well until all of a sudden I tripped and uh, my head began to plummet toward the ground. And that was pretty much fine because after all, nobody knows who I am until I realized that the, uh, the head of the Oregon duck, the mask was about to fall off of my face. And I guess at that moment, I just had one fear that I would forever be unmasked as uh, the kid who couldn't walk straight. Well, it was a close call, but I managed to keep my secret identity hidden I think we can all relate to being embarrassed. I may have escaped embarrassment that day, but I certainly have not escaped it every day of my life. We can all appreciate what it's like to be embarrassed. When you're hiding behind uh, something, it can be awkward and uncomfortable for the truth to be revealed. Uh, that mask, in a sense, that we're hiding behind can become our security, and it comes in all shapes and sizes. That mask can be our wealth. It can be our status or prestige. It can be our looks. It can be our health. And when that mask is on tight, and we're hiding behind it, we can have a sense of invincibility, a sense of security, a sense of being in control. But the moment that mask falls off, well, we're exposed as someone who just doesn't have it all together. And we're exposed as someone who really is in need. And so that day, 
that I was the Oregon Duck and I was only the Oregon Duck for one day. But that day, uh, I did not want to be unmasked as a klutz. And it's a silly example, but at the end of the day, I was proud. And I had yet to learn the message of James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so today, I want to talk about humility. Now, obviously, it's been several weeks since we were able to meet together, and we've got lots of questions. Uh, when will the crisis hit its peak? Uh, how long before a vaccine is ready? Uh, will the economy bounce back? Uh, when can I hug grandma? A much more important question. But they're all good questions, and I don't have the answers. But here's what I want to continually remind you of under these extraordinary circumstances. This season of COVID-19 and sheltering in place is an unusually good opportunity for us to be committed to self-examination and to prepare for revival as we are all a little bit out of sorts, right? As we're all struggling, wondering what the future is going to hold, this is a a really great opportunity to commit ourselves to examining our own hearts. Now, as Christians, we should be doing this all the time. But what a great reminder as the world, for so many of us, sort of slows down. What a reminder that this is an opportunity for God to jumpstart our spiritual lives and renew in us a proper sense of awe in and about Him. And so to take full advantage of this season of pandemic. I'm calling us as a church to a season of self-examination. So walk through the many rooms of your spiritual house and see if there are any pieces of furniture that need to be replaced. And today we come to a room with James 4, 6 emblazoned over the threshold. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This particular verse can be found originally in Proverbs 3.34. It's quoted by Peter, and of course here it's quoted by James. And Peter and James both using Proverbs 3.34 to call the early church to humility. Now to understand humility, we have to understand pride. And the book of James can help us with that very much. James, the author of this book, was Jesus' brother, after Pentecost, he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. When persecution hit in Jerusalem, uh, many believers had to flee. And they formed small congregations scattered throughout neighboring villages and cities. News of how these believers are doing eventually hit James. And this letter is a word of instruction from James, their former pastor, addressing the circumstances that they're facing among their scattered congregations. Now, this is one of the first New Testament letters, and that means that these are very young believers, and that's important because their spiritual immaturity really, really calls out to us in this letter. They are mixed up on some very basic facts about Christianity, and so they need to grow up now. They need to grow up quickly. 
And so the entire letter has a sense of urgency about it. James is like a fireman racing to put out the flames of a burning building as he writes these words. He is powerfully bringing a word of instruction and of correction and even of rebuke. In chapter 1, James tells them to seek God for wisdom. You see, they're not handling the trials of life very well at all. So James has to tell them that in order to persevere through trials, you need to have a wisdom that comes from God. You need to ask God for help. But that takes wisdom, and they don't have wisdom. In chapter 2, we learn that they are tempted to treat the rich better than the poor, even in their own church gatherings. And as awful as that is, that's just a symptom of a larger problem. They are simply not living out their faith. Look at James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Genuine Christianity changes your life. If I have a degree from a, a medical school, well, you'll know that I have that degree by the way I treat my patients. I'll, I'll care for them well. I will serve them well. I'll treat them well. Like wearing a, a college sweatshirt from a medical school does not make me a doctor. Right? The proof is in the pudding. Right? You'll know my expertise by the way I care for my, my patients. My actions will prove my degree is, is real. Our works prove our faith is real. It's a very simple point, I know. It's a point that needed to be made in these early years of the Christian church. It's a point that needs to be made every year of the Christian church. Now, sadly, instead of helping and serving other people, these young believers had gained a reputation for striving to look after themselves, to serve themselves, to gain for themselves greater degrees of notoriety. Look at James chapter 3, verse 1. James has to say, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Well, clearly, they, at least some of them, wanted to be teachers. They wanted leadership in the church, but they wanted it for themselves. They wanted to be served, not to serve. They hadn't thought through the the weight of leadership. They hadn't thought through the responsibilities that come with leadership. They didn't understand the heavy responsibility and accountability that comes when you're an elder Everyone's words matter. Uh, no, one, uh, no one's allowed to speak freely in that sense. Everybody's words matter. We're all going to be held accountable for our words. But how much more do those words matter when someone is teaching to others? They'll be judged, James says, with greater strictness. So James is looking out uh, over these scattered believers, and he sees people who want to teach, they want to be exalted, they want to be treated as important, but they don't know what this means. Their, their heart isn't in the right place. They aren't being wise. Right, look at chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. 
This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. So can you appreciate why James felt that he had to write this letter? Like a virus, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition infected these young churches. Kids, let me speak to you for a moment. I've really enjoyed this opportunity that I have to recognize that, that you're in the room and that you're listening. And so I want to speak directly to you. I want to ask you a question. Do you know what bitter jealousy is? Suppose you play soccer and your friend does too. And in fact, your friend is really good. And actually, she basically scores a goal like every time she plays a game. And you're lucky to go a whole season and and maybe score a goal or maybe even touch the ball. Now, you go to one another's games and you each cheer for one another and root one another on. And of course, your friend is often scoring a goal. And sometimes when you're there watching, you kind of wish she'd miss. You don't tell anybody. I mean, it, it doesn't seem like a very nice thing to want your friend to miss. But, but when she always does so well and you're watching it right in front of your eyes, sometimes you get a kind of sick feeling in your stomach. And it's not because you ate too many hot dogs. It's because there's a, a bitter jealousy inside you. It's because when she looks good, you know that you don't look particularly good. And even though you're cheering for her on the outside, on the inside, you kind of wish she wouldn't do so well. And again, that that feeling that you you get in the pit of your stomach that you don't really like, but you don't know what to do with it, that that feeling is called in the Bible bitter, bitter jealousy. Now, just imagine a church filled with bitter jealousy. It gets ugly. I mean, eventually you can't keep it on the inside. Eventually that kind of feeling is going to creep out and it's going to affect the way you talk to her. It's going to affect the way you talk to other people. And imagine if that's in a church and that's what James was hearing reports of. There were churches filled with bitter jealousy. And so instead of devoting themselves to praying and praising and encouraging one another, we'll look at, look at James chapter four, verse one. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, of course, you know, you don't want to murder your friend for being a good soccer player, but but you get the point. Uh, When your heart is in a bad place, your actions follow. And by verse 4, James is about to explode. I mean, I can almost picture veins, you know, popping out of his neck as he's writing these words. And he's so upset with what he's hearing about these young Christians. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? This is one of the sharpest rebukes that we find in the New Testament. And I can summarize their sin in one word, pride. And do you see their pride? Right? They wanted to be the most appreciated, the, the most talked about, the most respected. They were willing to trample over one another in the process. And they wore these huge masks that said, I'm the best teacher and they reeked with pride. 
And James has had enough. Look again at verse 4. He calls them adulterous people. And in fact, in the Greek, it literally reads, you adulteresses. James used the feminine form of the word adulterer. He says, you adulteresses. Because he knows his readers would have understood that in the Bible, God is so often described as the husband of his people. And so when his people turn away from him and towards the world, they are effectively cheating on their husband. They are being unfaithful to their husband. They're cheating on God. And if they, if they don't stop immediately, if they don't respond well to this well-deserved rebuke that James is giving, well, they're not even, even going to be able to be understood to be friends of God. Right? God will be their enemy. You can't be God's friend and the world's friend. Right? That's what James is telling them here. You've got to choose. And so again, do you, do you see their pride? They're putting their desires above God's desires. They're putting the world's standards above God's commands. And they, they're living life as if they know better than God, and that's pride. Now, it's hard to know how they became so proud. Uh, We know, again, they're young Christians. They're spiritually immature. Uh, Who knows what kind of lives God saved them out of? I mean, you can sense sort of the rawness of their lives in this letter. But I want you to know that that this kind of pride can happen to any of us, and it can happen to the best of us, whether we've been a Christian for a few days or a few decades. Last week, I mentioned King Jehoshaphat. And today, I want to tell you about another king, a King Uzziah. He was just 16 years old when he became king of Judah. Can you imagine that, becoming king at the age of 16? And he did, King Uzziah, did so much good. He prayed to God faithfully. He fought back enemy nations. He built buildings and he built farms and he outfitted his army and he served the Lord and he did good work. And as time went on, as his reign progressed, King Uzziah began increasingly to receive recognition from others. And in fact, it seems like everything he did prospered and everybody knew about him. And so we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 15. The text says this about King Uzziah. His fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. Right, King Uzziah sought the Lord. And God helped him. God strengthened him. Back in 2018, when Brian Davis was with us, our pastor friend from Philadelphia, Risen Christ Fellowship, he took that text and he applied it to pastors at our yearly conference, Feed My Sheep. Well, well, I want to apply it to you. I think you can relate. You've put in the hours. You've worked hard. You've prayed. Uh, You've gone to church, uh, at least when you could. You built a home, a a career perhaps. You've you've built a life. Maybe you aren't famous like Uzziah, but you've achieved a certain degree of success. 
You've been blessed. God helped you, and, and you grew strong. Now, unfortunately, somewhere along the way, King Uzziah forgot the God who helped him. And somewhere along the way, King Uzziah started to pray less, and he started to disobey God more. And in 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16, we read, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. You see, when you have everything you want, it can become very easy to neglect God. And that neglect is pride. From King Uzziah uh, to the people to whom James was writing, to us today, the scattered church of Mount Vernon Baptist, God opposes the proud. I don't know why God allowed COVID-19 to hit us. Uh, the, the car of that once roaring economy is now driving in reverse. I don't know why we've been hit this way, but this I know. When we have what we want, when our bank accounts, our bank accounts are basically growing, when our health is basically good, when our future seems basically bright, it is very easy to grow proud. And it's easy to think that we're the center of the universe, that somehow we deserve, somehow we've, we've earned all these extraordinary blessings. Now, what does it look like when we become proud? I mean, it's very practically. What might that look like? I could give you a lot of examples. Let me give you just a few. When you're proud, you pray with less fervency. When you're proud, you pray with less fervency. Now, let me be clear. You may even stop praying completely. But even when you are praying, you pray with less energy, less fervency, less zeal. When life is clicking on all cylinders, you're just not as convinced that you really need God's wisdom. After all, everything seems to be going okay. You've got what you need. What do you really need from God? And that's pride, praying with less fervency. Uh, you grow closer to the world. You grow closer to the world. In the absence of, of God's wisdom, you start to do what you think is best. You start making decisions really based upon what, what you think is right, what feels right, what intuitively seems good. You suppress your conscience. If your conscience has been informed by the Bible, it will very often lead you in the right direction. But when you become a friend of the world, you start denying or suppressing your conscience. You neglect God's commands and you embrace the standards of the world. And when you're, when you're too close to the world, well, inevitably, there's nothing very Christian about you, which is why James would be so direct to call these immature believers adulteresses. When you're, pride, when, when you're proud, you take the church for granted. You take the body of Christ for granted. You may be glad the church meets, 
Uh, you may be pleased that the church is available for other people who are particularly needy, but not you. You're not really inclined to be very involved. Right? That's, that's pride. And what is God's response? James 4, 6, God opposes the proud. Thank God for the second half of this verse, but he gives grace to the humble. One of the... Uh, classic examples in literature of the foolishness of pride is from H.G. Wells's famous book, The War of the Worlds. It's 1898, and England is a, a world superpower, right? England has everything. They've got the, they, they've got the army. They've got everything. They're the, uh, the empire in which the sun never sets. It's just an amazing dominant, world, global, superpower. But this power is dismantled when aliens from Mars invade. Right? This is one of the very first sort of science fiction books describing an alien invasion. And these Martians come and they're big and they're ugly and they've got spaceships and they've got laser ray guns. And England has no hope against such a mighty enemy. And so the nation is devastated, and the people are brought to their knees. And, and one man in the story, he describes what this is like. He describes what it's like witnessing the Martians just dismantle them. He says it's like being a king kicked off of his throne, and there's a new king in town. This is what, this is what he said. I felt a sense of dethronement, a sense of dethronement, a, a persuasion that I was no longer a master the fear and empire of man had passed away. England grew strong. And then they grew proud. But here's the thing. God will not allow you to be proud forever. He just won't. He won't allow you to keep on thinking you are in control of your life. Because when you think you are in charge, you have drunk the poison of pride you've committed cosmic treason. You've become a spiritual adulterer. This coronavirus, our economic troubles, our need to quarantine, none of this is good. I want it all to end yesterday. But in the midst of it all, there is undoubtedly something good. It is good to be reminded that you aren't God. That is a good thing. I'm not saying the virus is good. It is good, though, to be reminded that you are not God, that you are not in control of your life the way that perhaps in your spiritual slumber you tended to think. It's good to be reminded that you are a finite, fallible, weak, fragile creature. And I am too. God opposes the proud. Now, thankfully... God does more than oppose the proud. God gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. God is eager to help. He's eager to bless. He's eager to sustain us. Yes, God is a jealous God. We cannot forget that. God is so jealous. He, he demands our singular devotion. Right? We cannot follow God and play the field. We can't. He's a jealous God. We all fall short. 
that we all deserve the full fury of God's wrath. But this wrath is not the end of the story. I love the hymn we so often sing. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is as gracious as he is jealous. And we can experience God's grace. We can enjoy his mercy, but know this. Your experience of God's grace can never be severed from your demonstration of genuine humility. I'm not saying your humility will save you. No, God saves us by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but having been saved by God, having been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we will not stay the same. Our lives will change. The true believer will now approach God with a posture of humility. Humility will begin to mark your life. And so for the rest of our time, I, I want to talk about humility. What does it look like to be humble? Maybe as I say these words, you're, you're more aware of pride having crept into your life. Maybe with everything that's happening in the world today and the, the sense of feeling out of control, maybe you're a little taken aback by how taken aback you are that this world is just not going the way you expected it to go. And you've known, you've always known intellectually that you aren't in charge, but you're surprised at how taken aback you are to have that truth be so readily available every day as you can't go where you normally go or where you want to go. So maybe the Holy Spirit is using what we're all experiencing to remind you of your pride and of your need to experience a greater degree of humility. Maybe before COVID-19, you really weren't thinking much about God at all. Now life has slowed down and you realize again what you can't control. And you're more open to talking about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Whether you're a believer or a skeptic, I, I want you to know what it means to be humble. And James is full of wisdom here. So what does it mean to be humble? Well, I have four answers. First, the humble hate their sin. The humble hate their sin. Look at James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Well, there is the Christian life, at least part of it, in a nutshell. The way down is actually the way up. Before you know the exaltation of God, you need to know the humiliation of man. You need more than a a simple awareness of your sin, more than a, a tip of the hat to your unrighteousness. You need to hate it. 
You can't be truly humble until you take your sin seriously. And you're not taking your sin seriously if you're not hating it. The believer is to feel in his bones the wretchedness of his sin. He's to mourn over it. He's to weep over it. There's times when our laughter does need to be turned to mourning and our joy to gloom. Uh, James is not saying that the Christian should never laugh. Of, of course not. That's not the point here. But there is a time to cry. There's a time to mourn. Don't, don't take your sin lightly. Go to war with it. Hate it. Mourn over it. Grieve it. Commit to uprooting it from your life. Think of a star athlete who watches a video of the last game to see all the mistakes that he made and he, he pours over the, the tape because he wants to get better. He hates making a mistake. He hates uh, making a mistake in that, in that game. He doesn't want to ever repeat an error that he previously made. He wants to improve. He hates his weaknesses. He never wants to see them again. He never wants to repeat them. So just as an athlete hates his weaknesses on the court, well, the Christian hates his sin in his heart. That's what James is saying. And, and how do we come to have this, this kind of, a, of attitude toward our sinfulness? Can I go back to the, the, the analogy of an athlete? I, I think not. You don't come to hate your sin simply by rehearsing it again and again and again. You come to hate your sin by drawing near to God. That's how verse 8 begins quite strategically. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. And when God draws near to you, what happens? Well, he's closer to you. What happens when the, the white, hot holiness of God is closer to you? Well, in that moment, you begin to see your sin as it actually is. Right? When your face is in the light, you see all your blemishes. And when you are in the light of God's presence, of God's holiness, you will see your sin more clearly than you ever saw it. And the Holy Spirit will lead you to hate it more deeply than you've ever hated it before. The humble hate their sin. All right, second, the humble receive God's word, the Bible, the humble receive God's word with meekness. They receive it humbly. James put it this way. Look at James chapter 1, verse 21. James writes, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. In other words, the Christian is constantly in need of wisdom from the outside. The, the Christian is, is always in need of a wisdom that comes only from God. We seek for it in prayer. We find it in God's word. We are to receive God's word with meekness, right? No one who receives God's word with pride will be saved on the day of judgment, right? So you may be saying that you respect Love even God's word, but until you receive it with humility, well, you're not truly saved. Now, this is a very interesting expression, receive with meekness the implanted word, right? So there, there's a sense in which the, the word of God is a part of the Christian. 
right? It's, it's not that the Bible is physically in you. I, uh, that's not what it means there. But it is that the Bible is now so close to you. It's, it's more important to you than anything. You can no longer think of your life without reference to God's word. It's the implanted word. It's implanted in your heart. I like how one commentator explained this verse. He calls this message, these verses, a message to believers to allow the word to influence them in all parts of their lives. By adding the word humbly or with meekness to the command, James reminds us that we need to be open and receptive to the work of the word in the heart. Christians who have truly been born again demonstrate that the word has transformed them by their humble acceptance of that word as their authority and guide for life. Do you see what James is saying? Uh, We are never to stand in judgment over God's word. We are always to sit under the judgment of God's word. That's what James is so clearly saying. And what this means is if the Bible never corrects you, well, you are, by definition, spiritually proud. But I'm talking about the experience of reading through the Bible and coming across a passage or an idea, maybe a particular verse that that challenges your way of thinking, that challenges your way of living. It could be something theological. You may not like the idea that God elects. Even though Paul says in Ephesians 1.4 that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Right? It's, it's spiritual pride to let what you think God should be like trump what God actually says about who he is and about how he reigns. So it could be something theologically where the Bible is correcting you. It could be something ethical. You might not like the fact that Scripture says you're not to cheat on your taxes, to accept a bribe, uh, to date an unbeliever. Right? In your flesh, you might not like that. But the moment that your view of what's right and wrong eclipses God's view, well, you've entered into the territory of spiritual pride. You're not receiving the implanted word with meekness. So I think about this in marriage. I think about what kind of, what kind of husband would I be if I I, I never let Dina's wisdom and counsel correct me? One of the reasons that God has given me a, a wife is so that I can grow spiritually, both as I lead her and as I share life with her, as I learn from her. She's a gracious gift from God to me. Well, how much more should a Christian each day be challenged, corrected, molded, and formed by the Word of God? One thing I do very practically to try and help this process, encourage this process in my life, is after I read through whatever portion of the Bible I'm reading through in my daily Bible reading, I try to jot down just maybe one verse or one idea from one verse, one thought. I try to jot it down and let that thought, that idea, that truth be something I return to throughout the day. And I'm looking out for areas that I know I need to be corrected by Scripture 
or sharpened by Scripture, challenged by Scripture. I want to continually humble myself under God's word because the humble receive the word with meekness. All right. Third, the humble rest in God's sovereignty. The humble rest in God's sovereignty. Look if you would at James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. This verse, these verses don't uh, present the most flattering uh, picture of humanity, do they? We are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And the point is pretty simple. Compared to God, we're nothing. We're tiny, powerless, insignificant creatures. Now, this doesn't mean that, we're not, that we are without value. James isn't trying to make that point. Uh, we're made in the image of God. If you're a believer, you're redeemed by Christ, and that makes you in a sense of inestimable value. But in a sense, the believer is priceless. And in, in, in the sense, every, everyone created by God is, is priceless. But that's not the point here. Right? Compared to God, we're like a mist that vanishes. So let's, let's not be confused about this. We can put all the events we want on our calendar, and we will have no guarantee that those events will take place. Right? I have been pastoring Mount Vernon since 2008. Right? Every single trimester, I have led the church to publish a church card with dates. To the best of my knowledge, perhaps with the exception of getting sick once and not being able to preach a sermon, every date on that calendar has been met. Perhaps I was lulled to think that's what happens. We put those dates on the calendar and all of a sudden they come to pass. Ah, I have been sorely disabused of that notion. God is in control of the church card, not me. I'm a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Let me speak to the kids for a moment. Uh, do you ever ask your parents, Mom, Dad, can we do something tomorrow? Uh, you may say, Mom, can we go to the park? When you could go to the park. You may say, Dad, you know, will you take me bike riding? And sometimes your parents say, maybe. Very frustrating to you. You certainly want to hear yes. Sometimes no sounds better than maybe. maybe. Maybe forces you to live with a constant uncertainty. What are they going to decide? Are we going to be able to do this? Well, you need, here's the deal. You need to recognize your parents know more than you do. They know more about what's going to happen tomorrow than you do. They don't know everything about tomorrow, but they know more than you do. And so sometimes all your parents can do to not lie is say, maybe. But even if they said yes, the answer is always maybe. Our future plans are simply not guaranteed. And it's our job as Christians to embrace this. Right? And the humble, they don't just accept it. 
Like, like the way you have to accept it when a, when a teacher gives you a bad grade or your, your boss gives you a bad report. No, you're not just to accept it. No, the, the humble, they rest in God's sovereignty. They rest in it, right? Pastor Jeremiah Burroughs said that we shouldn't just submit to God's will. No, he said that we should make it our own. It's a profound thought. We should fully embrace it. We should rest in it. Listen to how Burroughs put it. He said, a Christian can make God's will and his own the same. It is said of believers that they are joined to the Lord, are one in spirit. And that means that whatever God's will is, I do not only see good reason to submit to it, but God's will is my will. When the soul can make over, as it were, its will to God, it must needs be contented. In other words, what Burroughs is saying is, is the moment that the Christian is able to love God so much and appreciate his union with Christ so deeply, at that moment, he's able to receive whatever the Lord sees fit to bring as his own will. And this is a hard thing to hear but a wonderful thing to aspire to, that we would love God so deeply that his will would be ours. Undoubtedly, this is why Jesus, who knew the pain of the cross around the corner, was able in all honesty and in full humanity to pray for a way out of this particular cup of suffering, but to end his prayer by saying, not my will, but your will be done. I think Jesus didn't merely submit himself to God's will. He owned it. He embraced it. And for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. The Christian who rests in God's sovereignty doesn't begrudge what comes his way. He rejoices in it. He's content, not because what's happening is good, but because the God who allowed it to happen is good. And so far, I've said the humble hate their sin, the humble receive God's word with meekness, the humble rest in God's sovereignty. There's one more thing that needs to be said. Fourth, the humble acknowledge Christ as Lord. The humble Acknowledge Christ as Lord. Turn, if you would, to James chapter 1. Look at that first verse of James chapter 1. James begins, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word servant is really the Greek word slave. This is how James sees himself. This is how he identifies himself. Yes, he is the brother of Jesus. Yes, he is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But really, at the heart of it, he's nothing more nor less than a slave of God the Father and God the Son. James is not in that sense free to do his will. Christ is his master. Christ is his Lord. All of James is about living a life enslaved to the Lord, Jesus Christ. 
Now, for many people, this is taking a step too far. It's one thing maybe to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is a great teacher. Uh, it's one thing to acknowledge that his life is a life worthy of imitation. But it's another thing entirely to assert that Jesus is your king, that he's your master, that he's the one with the right to demand anything and everything from you. The past few weeks, uh, I've been using the metaphor of a house to describe our spiritual state. Well, here's the thing. It's Jesus's house. Jesus is the master of the house. The house belongs to him. It's not ours. It's his. No one will experience the grace of God unless he understands that every room in that house is owned by Christ and Christ alone, Christian, we are slaves to Christ. Now, could any truth be more humbling than that? You are a slave, Christian, you are a slave to Christ. Colossians 1.15 comes to mind about Jesus. It writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Right, that's our Savior. All things were created through him and for him. That's our Lord. Right? Compared to him, we're nothing. Jesus is everything. Just Can you get your mind around that for just a moment? Jesus has always existed as the second person of the Trinity. Jesus always is, he always was, he always will be, right? Diamonds form in the deepest, darkest parts of caves and they form to pay tribute to the glory of Christ. Christ is that glorious, right? The sun itself shines for the sake of the name of Christ through whom the sun was made, right? Birds, they fly, and whales, they swim because Christ is glorious, right? We get out of bed. We get out of bed every morning, and we have one overarching purpose, and you either reject that purpose or you ignore that purpose or you embrace that purpose, but this purpose is true regardless of your posture, we get out of bed every day with one purpose, and that is to glorify Christ with our lives. I was reading an article about a writer who met Michael Jordan for the first time, and he was awestruck to be in the same room with Michael Jordan. He was awestruck, and he was shell-shocked, and so he, he, he described his reaction when he met the greatest man to ever play basketball. Uh, and this is what he said. Michael's eyes remained fixed on me. And I could feel the heat of a thousand suns bloom in my face. Well, come on. If a sports writer can pen a sentence like that about a basketball player, how much more should the heart of the Christian 
be overwhelmed with the majesty and supremacy and beauty and glory of Jesus Christ? How much more should we be so quick to identify ourselves as slaves of Christ? Jesus turns human conceptions of glory upside down. Consider that the gospel teaches Jesus laid his glory aside when he took on human flesh. When he walked through the dirty streets of Nazareth. When he allowed his body to be hung on a Roman cross. Right, the, the most glorious person to ever live the God-man himself allowed his body to be beaten and nailed to a tree so that inglorious sinners like you and me could be forgiven. The master took the place of a slave. The one who deserved all glory became a man with no glory because that's what God decided it would take to dethrone our pride. God opposes the proud. So how would he dethrone our pride? In Christ, we see humility stronger than any battering ram and able to pulverize the pride of the human heart. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, and he gives grace through the humble, the humblest to ever live, Jesus Christ. A few minutes ago, I mentioned the book, uh, The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, written in, in 1898, uh, never been out of print, uh, the Martians, I said, have taken over. Man is defeated. He is utterly lost. Humanity is humbled. Uh, none of our weapons are able to uh, uh, do anything against these uh, spaceships, right? Uh, all of England's soldiers are basically like, you know, toy soldiers that are just melting in the face of this Martian onslaught. And then, all of a sudden, the unexpected happens. All right, spoiler alert. As all England is braced for utter annihilation, the Martians all of a sudden start getting sick and they die. Uh, what's going on? Well, believe it or not, Mount Vernon 2020, the Martians had been infected by a tiny pathogen. An invisible virus killed the enemy. And H.G. Wells, reflecting on that, uh, reflecting on, on his own uh, uh, conclusion to the story, he said this, after all man's devices had failed, the Martians had been slain by the humblest things that God, in his wisdom, has put on the earth. A tiny, tiny virus. Well, the last thing I want to do right now is say anything positive about viruses. But God has a funny way, doesn't he, of using 
things that the world hates to accomplish amazing things. Nearly 2,000 years ago, God took the humblest and most hated thing on the face of the planet, the cross of Christ, and he used it to slay our greatest enemies, sin and death. And that, my friends, is why the humble must acknowledge Christ as Lord. And that's why I would plead with you once again, if you've never done it before, for you to personally acknowledge Christ as Lord. Don't let this strange season go to waste. Admit your, your own sin, your own unrighteousness, your own inability to save yourself. Admit the, that God is holy. He's so glorious and wonderful. He is the Lord worthy of praise. Right? Confess that our only hope is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who lived a perfect life and died on the cross in the place of sinners just like you and like me. Humble yourself. Respond to this gospel in repentance and in faith. Doesn't matter how old you are. Humble yourself in response to this gospel with repentance and with faith. All of us struggle with pride, right? I, I know I do. I'm still that, well, I'm not so much a kid anymore, but I'm the same guy who didn't want anyone to see my face when the duck mask was about to roll off my head. We all have masks, right? I, I still struggle today as a pastor who is so eager to be seen as having it all together. And I know you're not very different from me at all. It's important to remember that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. To know God is to know humility. And so remember, the humble hate their sin. The humble receive God's word with meekness. The humble rest in God's sovereignty. And the humble acknowledge Christ as Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your kindness. We thank you that you are holy and just and worthy of worship, and worthy of praise. And Heavenly Father, as we so long to gather together again, we pray that until that day comes, we would fight for revival that only you can bring, that we would examine the spiritual rooms in our spiritual house and to look for all signs of spiritual slumber, and today, especially, we pray for the kind of humility that we need to demonstrate the gospel is alive and well in our hearts. You oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. Give grace to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.